Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us to avoid the way of Herod and to walk in the way of Christ, that our lives may glorify you through his grace. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So I haven't been in Maine quite, or in Arizona quite long enough to have figured out how this plays out here, but, but in Maine there's, there's a family, the, the Mills family, and the funniest thing about them is both the brother and the sister have run to be governor of Maine, and, and, and one of them ran as a Republican and the other ran as a Democrat, sadly not against each other because that would have been way more interesting, but... But the reality is, is, is they're a political dynasty in Maine. They, they keep popping up from generation to generation and trying to do different things in, in politics in, in the, our, my home state. I haven't been in Arizona or really nearly observant enough to know whether this happens here or not, but undoubtedly it does to a certain extent, at least. On a national scale, of course, we know that there's the Bush family and the Clinton family, both who have dominated politics in the last two or three decades or so, and, and, and their names pop up from time to time. And so we know political dynasties are real, even in our modern age, even in a country that's a democratic republic like ours. Families tend to kind of gravitate towards those same things. So this morning, if, if you've been following along, we take this really strange shift and we stop focusing on Jesus and his works and his actions, and all of a sudden, Herod becomes the main focus. And we've got to understand who Herod is, right? Herod pops up in scripture, and we might be easily confused. But the reality is, is that the Herodians were a political dynasty that we see pop up around Jesus' time and, and ruled for several generations in Israel, about 130 years or so. So don't confuse the Herod which we read this morning with his father, whom we read about right, as, as trying to, to track down Jesus and kill him when he's an infant. We know that story as well, but that's not who this Herod is. This is his son, Herod Antipas, who, who Mark calls a king, but, but really he's, he's a tetrarch. But he really, really, really wanted to be a king, and he acted like a king. And so it'd be easy to blame Mark, oh, well, you misidentify him. But the reality is, is Mark is just writing about how he sees Herod, even though Herod wasn't actually a king. So now that I've made probably some of you uncomfortable, you're like, oh, no, he's going to talk about politics. Let me just alleviate your fears. I won't be talking about politics. Instead, I'm going to make you all uncomfortable because this passage really looks at Herod's sin and points towards what happens when you turn your back on God and when you turn your back on Christ. Right, so, so if you remember last week, and those of you who weren't here last week, this text is introduced as, as Jesus' disciples go out into Galilee, and we hear that they go out and they're teaching, and all these amazing things are happening. And most likely, that's why we segue into this passage, right? So, so Jesus' disciples go out and they're telling everybody they can about all the amazing things that Jesus is doing. They're even doing some really mighty works. So chances are, as they wander around, somebody who knows Herod has heard about it and then passes this on 
to Herod. And so he starts to wonder, well, who is this Jesus guy? And Mark brings in these other elements that that so often happen when people try and wrestle with who Jesus is. They go, well, well, maybe he's John the Baptist raised from the dead or, or somehow like reincarnated or something like that. And then other people are like, well, maybe he's Elijah, right? Because there's a prophecy that Elijah has to come back before the Christ comes. And then there's other people that are like, well, no, he's just another great prophet. But Herod... Herod remembers John the Baptist. And it's easy to miss in English because it's really hard to convey like an emphatic, an emphatic statement in English in just strictly writing. You know, if, if they had really done it well in, in our text, they would have italicized I, right? So, whom I beheaded, right? You, you, if you're saying it, it's really obvious. But, but in, in writing, you can just say, well, whom I beheaded, and it doesn't sound that emphatic. But, but it's, John knows that he killed this righteous man, or not John, Herod knows that he killed this righteous man, John. There we go. <clears throat> and so he's like, oh no, John's coming back for me. Right, and, and if we just stopped there, it would make sense within the context of, of the gospel according to St. Mark. But, but all of a sudden we take this shift and, and really turn our focus away from Jesus. And it's it's intentional by Mark because he wants to draw out some things and he wants to point out some things that are happening culturally and that are happening in the world around him. And he also wants to compare something. But we'll get to that last point in a moment and as we work through the passage. So verse 17, we have this shift away from, from Jesus and his ministry to this, this sort of ruckus party. <clears throat> and... and and as I said, it starts to draw out sort of John, uh, Herod's sinfulness and, and, and how he's really turned his back on God. See, Herod's feud starts with John because Herod does something wild. He marries his brother's wife. He marries his brother's wife. And you might be thinking, well, you know, that, that was a normal thing, right? Like your brother dies and you take his wife so that you can pass on his name and and so on and so forth. I, I hate to break it to you, that's not what's happening here. No, Herod's brother Philip is almost definitely still alive, and to make things worse, worse Herod's wife, if we, we have from secular sources, is definitely alive. He, he meets Herodias and he's like, oh, you're pretty cool, I want you to be my wife now. And he just takes his wife and sends her off out of his kingdom. Right, right so this is, this is terrible in and of itself. <clears throat> and the text tells us Herod's not really upset. Maybe he is, and he's just comfortable being uncomfortable. But Herodias is really upset by what John's been saying, and she just wants him gone off the face. She's tired of hearing about how they're doing something awful and sinful. And the Jewish historian Josephus brings a little more light to this, right? Part of what, what Herod's fear here is and why he is willing to arrest um, John is because John's popularity keeps growing and growing. And so Herod is really concerned that at some point he's going to start a popular uprising. So, so he arrests John and brings him in. And whether, it's, he, Herod, whether John is just talking out about how awful Herod is for what he's done or because... Or, Herod actually, or John actually confronts him after his arrest, isn't really clear. We can't really put, put them together. But 
it's easy to think, well, there's, there's two different accounts and two separate things going on, but more likely, they just bring light into each other, right? There's, there's one element in which John is definitely going after Herod, like, hey, what you've done is wrong. And there's the other element of John's like, yeah, or Herod's like, yeah, I know, and, and you getting more and more popular, and you can overthrow me. And, and so Herod arrests him, brings him into the house, but he doesn't want to kill him because, because ultimately he can see that, that John is a righteous man. And as we read about Herodias and her reaction to John, there's this allusion back to another king and queen. Allusion back to first and second kings, in which we read about and learn about Ahab and Jezebel. And in particularly because of Jezebel, Ahab embraces pagan worship and kind of makes it the standard throughout all of Israel. And of course, the prophets speak out about this, and, and Jezebel has a whole bunch of them taken care of, if you will. But one of them is just really bold and, and often sometimes is like, no, I'm, I'm out, God, don't, don't ask me to do this again. Um, and that's, of course, Elijah. And Elijah keeps preaching against what Ahab and Jezebel are doing. And, and, and by comparing by comparing Herod and Herodias to Ahab and Jezebel, it starts to illuminate what they're doing. It starts to illuminate that they're not being a good governor of the region of Galilee and the area which, which, which Herod has been put over. Not only that, that they're turning their back on God. <clears throat> by making this illusion, there's something else here going on, which... I think Mark is trying to purposely point out that, that John is actually the second Elijah. And, and we read about this throughout the gospel accounts, that, that yes, the second Elijah did come before the Christ. And so there's this sort of subtle illusion here that, yes, John is the second Elijah, because John, like Elijah, speaks against the king of the land. And the final thing that, that that little part of this text points out is it illuminates John's righteousness and holiness in compared to Herod and his family's sin. We all have that friend that's really great at getting together people and having a really fun, fun party. And, and you hear, oh, John is having a party. We should really try and make time to go because it's going to be a lot of fun. All our friends are going to be there, so on and so forth. That part of my life has, has long since passed away, more or less. And the idea of being in a large crowd with a lot of people is less and less attractive, but that's neither here nor there. In Galilee, Herod was that person. He was known for his parties. The, the historian Josephus that I referred to earlier records at least one of his parties and the incredible extravagance that it was. And so when people heard that Herod was going to throw a birthday party for himself, they naturally wanted to come. So we read that all of the leaders within his, his household were there, all the military commanders, and most interestingly, the leading men of Galilee. It's hard to figure out exactly who these leading men of Galilee were and, and why they were there. But it seems like what's going on is the sins of Rome are seeping in to the culture around them. It seems like they're seeping in and starting to deteriorate what's going on around them. 
And so the passage continues. And at the party, Herodias' daughter, we read Herodias' daughter comes out and dances for Herod. Now, now most likely, Herodias' daughter is, is about a teenager. And at, at first glance, and, and often I had read it this way, and I've talked to other people who did, you think, oh, that's a cute thing. It's very nice that she did this and, and whatever. But, bef- but to understand this in context, within the Jewish context, cultural context, it would have been absolutely unthinkable for a girl to dance before a group of men like this. Now, whether... Now, whether what is going on is just beyond the unthinkable or not, it's really hard to read beyond that. But this isn't a cute thing that's happening. We can, we can say that definitively. This is, this is not a good thing that's happening. Although, admittedly, compared to most Roman parties, this would have been a fairly tame event. But again, we see this Roman culture starting to creep in around them. We see this Roman culture creeping into the situation. And it shows the moral slipping that's happening in the king's mind and his head. And so he offers her, offers this little girl, this girl, teenage girl, a lavish gift. And this offer echoes another thing that happens in the Old Testament. In particularly, when Xerxes offers Esther a gift. And it's interesting because both of these offers act to uncover an insidious and evil plot. In the case of Esther, it acts to uncover the plot to kill Esther's father and father or something like that. I, I'm blanking at the moment. Sorry, I should have made better notes. But, but it acts to uncover a, an immoral desire to kill. And, and same here, except that unlike Xerxes, Herod goes through with it. And the offer, of course, isn't intrinsically sinful. It, it's just saying, you know, it, and it's very hyperbole, hyperbolic, right? Up to half my kingdom, he doesn't really mean that he's going to give her half her kingdom. But what he means is he he's, wants to give her some big gift. He wants to give her some big gift because he's, he's very pleased. But as we start to read between the lines, it seems like Herod is probably not quite thinking straight at this point. Probably for a lot of reasons. So the girl asks her mom what she should ask for. And Herodias seizes the opportunity and, and says to ask for the head of John the Baptist. So she finally silence him and get her revenge. <clears throat> now, it's, it's easy again here to kind of feel bad for this girl. Like, oh my gosh, this poor teenager is being brought into this drama between John and her mom and her dad, or stepfather probably. But if we read carefully, we notice that the teenage girl sort of ups the ante a little bit here. She doesn't just ask for the head of John the Baptist like her mother has said, but she, she asks for John, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. In other words, she wants to present it nicely to her mother, to please her mother. She's, she is complicit in what is going on. And that's when Herod knows he's done something He has done something awful in his drunkenness and his lustfulness. And he has caused the death of a righteous man. The result of Herod's sin is death. 
the death of John the Baptist. And you see that sin is strange like that. Sin has a way of creeping in, and we see it sort of slowly, slowly, slowly accelerate throughout this text until somebody dies. It's not, de- it's not Herod that dies, and of course our own sin affects us the most, but it often affects others around us, and that's when we so often notice it the most clearly, is when we've hurt our neighbor, our friend, our loved one, or in this case, our enemy. What is interesting about this passage here, of course, is its placement. And in staff Bible study, we spent quite a bit of time wrestling with the question of, well, well, why is it here? It makes sense, right, to introduce it the way that it does, but then it takes this weird, sharp turn. And it almost seems out of place. <clears throat> but it does two things. It definitively marks the end of John's Baptist, John the Baptist's ministry. Right? His disciples take his body, they place it in a tomb, and that, that sort of closes the door or rolls the stone in front of the tomb door to end John's ministry. So that Jesus is now the primary and main prophet on the scene in Israel. But it does another really interesting thing, in particularly the question of why it's here. For those of you who are looking at your Bible, you'll notice the next passage, what we'll look at next week, is the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 stands in comparison to this. We have this big worldly feast where something terrible happens. And then we have another big feast that's otherworldly that can only be explained by the fact that Jesus presided over it and brought brought the bread of life to these 5,000 plus people sitting and listening to him teach. These two passages are very intentionally placed to confront you with the question, are you going to live after the way of Herod, to live after the way of sin, sin that leads to death? Or are you going to live for Christ? Are you going to live for the life that comes from him alone, that leads to the marriage feast of the Lamb, to the joy, to the simplicity of following him, to freedom, to love? Some time ago, Julie and I went to this Christian marriage conference, and the the presenters asked what the cause what the main cause, or what are causes of divorce? And everybody popped up ones. Infidelity, anger, fighting, the failure to reconcile, so on and so forth. And we were guests of the presenters, so I, I just sat there politely. But I noticed that nobody ever said sin. Nobody ever said, you know, the person that had the adulterous affair sinned, which caused to sever this relationship, which caused divorce to come. And for whatever reason, we as a culture get really uptight and and uncomfortable talking about sin. And and when we talk about evangelization in, in these days and age, one of the things we have to figure out is how do you graciously and articulate sin? Because we all feel it in our life. We feel an unease at the foot of a holy God. We feel that there's something broken inside of us. 
We see how we hurt somebody. But lest we call it sin, we call it all kinds of other things. But the reality is sin is real, and we see it spelled out in this passage. We see how Herod has embraced the Roman culture over his Jewish culture. How he's preferred licentiousness to holiness. Holiness which would have made him an excellent king. And perhaps even achieved his goal of becoming a king. But instead, he allows that external culture to deteriorate him as a person and all of those around him. We see how Herod's action definitively led to the death of John the Baptist. Our sin has that effect where it affects those around us. And of course, it affects us. Spiritually, Herod has no relationship with God. He turns his back and rebels against God so that he's afraid of godly men like Herod or like John and and wonders what what is going to happen with this Jesus character. And temporally, Herod's life is kind of a mess. And and we don't get this from this passage, but we can go and read about him in Josephus and, and eventually he's just kind of pushed off to the side, sent into exile And we see just this this sense of regret and shame as he goes away from from the popular point, or from the public viewpoint. So, So sin can do all of this to us. But the good news really, really comes in the next passage. And we really need the next passage, but it would be really long and you all would have gotten mad, but... But we really need that next passage to, to illuminate this passage, which is no matter where you came from this morning, whatever feelings you have this morning, whatever shame, regret, heartache, whatever anger or cynicism, whatever lust, whatever desire to divide rules your heart, God moves towards you in Christ Jesus. God moves towards you to give you life, to give you the bread of life, to invite you to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So my friends, take heart. Flee from the way of Herod. Flee to the way of Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.